Uh, just a little announcement for whoever is not aware of it currently. Both of the bathrooms are down for the count. So, pray for patience and endurance in the Lord. All right. So turn with me to the book of Nahum. We're going to be continuing our Old Testament survey where every week we go over a whole book of the Old Testament. I'm very thankful this week that the book was three chapters that gave me the opportunity to read through it a number of times and start to get a feel for the book in ways that I haven't been able to with some of the longer books. You'll find Nahum after Micah and before Habakkuk. It's near the end of the Old Testament. 1457 in my book. Yeah, I mean, the bigger your Bible is, the holier you are. So. Yeah, you're coming up with a lot of unbiblical things here. <laughs> I just need to keep you all on your toes. Yeah. You can handle it. The others need to look into this guy. That's why Gary avoided being here. <laughs> all right. Let's pray before we get into the study proper. Dear Heavenly Father, we gather because it is pleasing to learn about you, to draw near to your things, the things that you have communicated to us, to love one another and to grow in our knowledge of who you are, not in an academic way, but in a personal way, as through your scripture you communicate yourself to us and witness your person to us that we might know you and be found in you, having a righteousness not our own. (laughs) Bless my words and bless all of our minds and our hearts to be receptive to your truths here today. Keep us from error and lead us in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 So, by this point, most of you have caught on to my exceedingly cunning ploy to ask you questions that are answered with the book that we're studying today. Because you have managed to outwit me in this matter, I'm going to have to change tactic yet again and attempt to, to outsmart you and trick you into putting your thinking caps on and engaging with the text. Do you ever think of becoming a military strategist? I'll do it in my next life. Um, So the question I have for you today is what questions do you ask about a text of scripture when you're studying it? When you do your, your daily readings, what things are you asking about the text to help yourself understand and apply its truths. So what does this tell me about the character of God, the being of God? Yeah, I think that's one of the fundamental ones. Yeah. If we understand the purpose of Scripture, you know, Jesus is the, the Word, and so there's a parallel between Him and Scripture, and Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and so the, also the Word of God is the image of the invisible God. So one of the, the primary questions we should ask is, what does this show us about our God? Any other questions? How you can apply it to yourself. Mm. Yeah. 
And that, that assumes what we know to be true from, from many scriptures, that, that all of scripture is breathed out from God and profitable for us. That despite the fact that some of these things were written thousands of years ago and, and contain accounts of stories that go back even further, they are richly applicable to our present circumstances and our present realities. Well, I think we all need to bear in mind that some things don't change. Human nature does not. Mm-hmm. God does not. So these things apply as they did. Uh, the lessons are there in, I think, uh, almost like a uh, play before us to illustrate certain mm-hmm. truths that are timeless. Yeah, a hundred percent. And And we find that not only do some things not change, that it is often the most important things or the most significant things that do not change. And so while the settings and the circumstances fluctuate much over the course of human existence, the realities of who God is and who we are are timeless. You know, there is nothing new under the sun. And so the the things that ring the most true about every scripture are the things that still ring true thousands of years later, which is why we find good purpose in gathering together and reading it. Any other questions that you can think of? I was just uh, thinking of a few I don't necessarily use all of these all the time, but they're, they're helpful, helpful ones to have in your head. Um, how is this text fulfilled in Jesus? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we understand that, that everything in scripture is, is pointing to or pointing from Jesus such that, that he is, you know, everything is yes and amen in him. And so, so many of the, the stories have characters or themes that are fulfilled in Christ or fulfilled in contrast to Christ. So many of the promises are fulfilled in Christ. So, and all of the truths of God are most clearly exemplified to us in the life and living of Christ. And so this is one of the, the helpful things for realizing the, the Jesus-centric nature of Scripture. How is this the text fulfilled in Jesus? Um, who is it written to? Always a good thing to, to put in context. Um, the God working through authors intentionally wrote things in certain ways for certain people. And that's one of the the helpful tools to keep us from misapplying the truth of a text to our situation. Mm -hmm. So when we read numerous Old Testament passages that are functioning within the context of the Old Covenant, we need to realize that they are written for those people. And so we have to be more careful in how we apply it to our new covenant context. April brought up this question, how does it apply to my current circumstances? God is sovereignly orchestrating our study of scripture. And that means he He is very often applying certain truths directly to the matters that we're enduring today. We understand that the word is living in how it applies to our lives. Um, what is one truth that I can pull out of this text or meditate on? 
this is a, a great question for, for grabbing something and trying to keep it with you throughout the day so that the word is not just something you engage with for a set time in the morning, but is rather something that endures with you and you're, you're making produce fruit in the rest of your life. Um, and in a contrary form, what do I not understand or understand fully in this text? Because taking the time to notice these questions, one, should drive us to study more, and two, should help us as we read other passages to look to how the scripture puts together a whole image of the narrative and the truths that it presents. Um, But the last two questions, which we'll be focusing on more today, is how does this fit into the story of scripture? The, the whole scripture is a grand narrative and setting things properly in that narrative helps us to see the, the trajectory and the plan that God is working out. And then what does this text show me about my God? <clears throat> this second question, what does this text show me about my God is going to be particularly helpful to us in our study of Nahum. Um, as the, the first section of Nahum, this introductory section, is all about who God is. You could actually peel this section out, out of the context of, of Nahum and the circumstances at that time, and these truths would be just as clear and just as articulable as they were in this moment. And, you know, as a reminder of what we've, we've mentioned a few times before, that in many of the Old Testament books, the first section of the book is given to lay out the themes and major ideas of the book. You know, you, so that when we turn to a Nahum or a Samuel, that we can look at the, that first section and go, okay, this is showing me what things to be on the lookout for when I go through the rest of the book. So we're going to read this first section. Then we can discuss its themes and ideas and some of their implications before we move on to a greater study of the book of Nahum. So Nahum chapter 1, starting in verse 2 and going through to verse (coughs) 8. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The Lord and all the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. 
but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. See how this text is rings so true even without the, the context that it's situated in. We don't need to even understand Nahum and what's going on in those days to, to see the truths that are being presented here. I also want to highlight, if you look, all the instances of the word the Lord here are in all capitals. That is a, a translator tool to represent the name Yahweh. You know, where at other points in scripture, God will be called Adonai or other words talking about Lord or God. This all capital form of the Lord is there to represent the, the covenant name of who God is. Yahweh, which is he is representing God's proclamation to Moses. I am. So what themes do we, or ideas do we see worked out in this first introductory section? It's a great contrast here between God being loving and slow to anger, but on the other hand saying it's not going to go unpunished. Yeah. I mean, justice. Justice. God's love and God's justice. Mm -hmm. They meet. They're not, uh, it's common. Yeah. This is something America needs to hear. I mean, America's, America's toast. I mean, we got to keep doing what we're doing. And America's done, man. There's no way God overlooks this. You read this book, right. and there's no way yeah. that God doesn't know. What nation will he use? I don't know. Next week we'll talk about Habakkuk and see how God can use a brutal nation to do something else to another brutal nation. Yeah. But I don't... I read stuff like this, and I say, how can God possibly endure America much longer? We st- literally stink to high heaven. I see. <laughs> One thing you can't remove yourself from is the imagery that God uses in his writings to the prophets using his creative power, his sovereignty over that creation, and how it's displayed in relationship to wrath he now pours out upon the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and then I think I'm with Pat, it's like we have. Uh, we have literally jettisoned God as creator in our cultural age. So, really, it puts them puts the world even more at a blind <coughs> state to God's wrath that is poured out. And it's a core part of the belief for the Christian to be able to understand he sends the course of the thunderbolt, he sends the rain, mm-hmm. the, he feeds the beasts in the field and they're satisfied. Yeah. And we, we glory in that, what the Lord does every single day. And yet the nations just reject him and reject him as creator and reject him as redeemer. And, yeah. So the way that I apply the scripture, and it kind of feeds into the questions. I, you know, I couldn't think of any questions, but all the questions you raised were the questions that I would normally do. So when I read a scripture like this, I don't really look at the United States of America. I look at the enemies that we as Christians are facing in the world today that are trying to promote these really awful ideas. And so I want them to, I want them to totally destroy those people that, you know, I'm in the public square and dealing with these people all the time. 
And I want the Lord to strike them down dead. Yeah. Okay. I want him, his wrath to fall on these people now because they're just nasty. <laughs> just they do so much damage yeah. and they create such fear in people's lives. I just that's what I see in the scripture. It's, it's like at least for our country, it's like a lot of it is being done to us by people with evil intent that are atheists and they have no place for any of us that believe in God. And they're like Bill just said, they're trying to make us fearful of standing up and fighting against that. Yeah. I, mean, I suppose it could be, you know, to that tune as well, that we do have the sense that God doesn't, you know, remember when Abraham was appealing with God about the destruction of Sodom. He said, are you going to destroy it? If there's only ten righteous, and he said, no, I won't destroy it. No. Yep. So, so there is that hope sort of as well. And we see that reflected in this passage when we read in uh, verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. Mm-hmm. This is very importantly referenced in a section about God's wrath, that that when God brings his wrath, he will be sheltering his people, both from his wrath and by the bringing of his wrath, protecting them. We have the, the vengeance of God working out here, that those who saw fit to attack him and his people he will see fit to bring to utter destruction. You know, we see three times the <coughs> Lord is avenging. The Lord takes vengeance. Mm-hmm. And in another spot, it talks about his vengeance again. We talk about <coughs> the wrath of God, which is so heavily manifested here that God's righteous response to sin is anger is fury, is terrifying. Another theme that's, that's really captured in this first section is the power of God. We can't talk about God's defense of his people or his vengeance against the nations and those who oppose him without talking about his power to achieve those things. And so we read about God rebuking the sea. I mean, even now, if you're out on a boat in the middle of the ocean, you're likely struck by the immensity of the ocean. And to think of back in those days and the trepidations of sailing, how how crazy it was to to be out on open water in this wooden boat with, with these cloth sails, like just trying to make your way with waves that easily go above the height of your ship, you know? And to show the power of God, it says he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. I mean, like, the immensity of power to look at the ocean and snap and it's gone. Mm-hmm. You know, unfathomable to us. Mm-hmm. Yep. Bashan and Carmel, these great mountains withering away. I'm reminded of a story apparently in World War II in the Pacific. There was a storm. Uh, covered, I guess they were in a, in a battle of some sort. And the, uh, the bow of a carrier was curled up over the front by the ocean, by the, you know, the waves and the power of the sea. I mean, mm-hmm. you talk, yeah, you're talking about small boats, but even 
it seems like uh, if man builds a ship, God says, okay, watch this. And an aircraft carrier is an unbelievable construction. I mean, it's just gargantuan of steel and like rising high above and, and the ocean is you're not just the waves when I was just 10 or 11 years old my aunt rescued me from being sucked out to the ocean yeah. to the undercurrent I'd have drowned for sure and I was just so it, it does it that way too if it doesn't get you out there on the, on the wide open it can grab you right there on the surface of the shore with an undercurrent yeah, yeah it's like it's insane you know the, the clouds are the dust of his feet <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like this is this is imagery to say nothing you know comes even close to comparing to who this God is. That the scale at which God operates makes even your biggest terrors to be as nothing. The greatest things you can imagine. I mean, we'll talk later on about Nineveh and its great city's walls that reached a hundred feet high. But what is a hundred feet high to a mountain? And yet we see that a mountain before God quakes and hills melt. And so then Nahum asks the, the obvious following question, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? So we see God's holiness on display. We see his power, his justice. An interesting point is I think even God's faithfulness is on display here. As we sit under suffering wrought by evil people, and as the Jews sat under suffering wrought by evil people, they may have come to wonder, does God care about good anymore? Why does he allow this to continue? How could it go on like this and God do nothing? And Nahum's answer in verse 3 is the Lord is slow to anger. But that slowness doesn't doesn't mean that he never angers and that he never brings about his vengeance. So just because you're sitting in that period of slowness where God is withholding the punishment, he says, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Okay, so just because he is slow to anger does not mean for a second we should consider that God will want will forget to punish evil and sin. He will by no means clear the guilty. And that's, that's meant to be a comfort to his people. That those who oppose us will not persist forever, even if it looks like they can go on in sin without receiving any retribution. Mm-hmm. I think from that we can uh, have peace, realizing that it looks like it's chaotic. It looks like things are out of control, and that uh, things, you know, things aren't being uh, justice is not being served. But we can count on the fact that we know God will, and it's something. And it will be very. It'll be at the right time. It'll be the right measurement of justice, and it will be obvious. Yeah. And we, we find that all of this is wrapped up 
in God's love for his people. As verse 7 helps capture the Lord is good. This highlights his benevolence. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows, he loves, he is close to those who take refuge in him. This is all of the vengeance that God is bringing about and his great power and his holiness and his justice are all intimately connected with the expression of his love for his people. And so a, a way that I would, would summarize this, this book, understanding that, that God has written it for the sake of his people, that Nahum is God's message of his powerful, avenging love for his people. That Nahum is God's message of his powerful, avenging love for his people. So now that we've, we've laid out some of these themes as the, the bones of this book, we can start putting it together and, and adding some meat to flesh it out. <clears throat> so that we can deepen our understanding of what's, what's being captured here. This, this idea of God's holy, avenging love for his people. So we, we get two characters introduced in the first verse. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Nineveh. Where is that? What is that? Yep. And what nation was it part of? Assyria. Assyria. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. <clears throat> this book was written about halfway through the 7th century BC. This is before <clears throat> the Assyrian Empire falls and Babylon comes in and takes Judah away. But this is after the northern kingdom has been carried off by Assyria and at the time that, that Nahum is writing, the Assyrians are in Judah, threatening Jerusalem. Nineveh, the, the capital of Assyria, is an incredible city. It is one of the greatest cities in the world at this time. Huge. Massive and incredibly fortified. A, a fortress in a stronghold. Scholars point out that, that Nineveh had two series of walls. An outer wall and an inner wall that, that stretched around the city for miles and miles. That the, the inner wall is said to have been a hundred feet high. And so wide that three chariots could drive side by side across the top of it. That it is monstrously huge. That, that any of the, the Jews who had seen it or had heard of it would hear of a mountain of a fortification. And outside the outer wall was a moat that was 150 feet wide. And 60 feet deep. This is a, a body of water that is, is built to defend the city and make it hard to siege. 150 feet wide. 
Like, we don't have rivers that big over here, you know? And they, they were building huge river, like a huge river like that to go around their city. It's just, by every estimation, unconquerable. By all of the sights of man, this little nation of Judah would be hopeless against it. So that's that's Nineveh, and Assyria at the time is is the the greatest empire that exists, ruling over many people. It had in the decades prior to the writing of Nahum conquered all the way down into Egypt, overthrowing the great Egyptian kingdom at the time, always known for their power and their might. Assyria was triumphant and it would be hard for anyone at this time to think of what could bring about its downfall. And then we have Nahum. We know that he's a prophet. Other than that, we, we don't really know anything else about this character. Um, he's an Israelite, obviously. And he's chosen by God from this nation that... In the scale of nations means nothing. This this little Judah that, that has the Assyrian army in it currently threatening its destruction. So what we have here is Nahum, who is prophesying from, uh, as one brother puts it, no count nowheresville. <laughs> like this backwater place that, that in the political scale of things doesn't matter the the Wisconsin of the Near East <laughs> um, and we have Nahum prophesying against the most powerful kingdom that anyone around him would have known of and he's prophesying its destruction and so we <clears throat> let's start seeing the the different ways in which this destruction is prophesied and drawn out. First, who is going to bring about this destruction? God. Yeah. God is going to be the one who overturns this great city. This point is stressed in this book. There's, there's no mention, really, of what earthly means that God will use where like Habakkuk has the usage of one nation to destroy another God makes sure to stamp his fingerprints all over this we read in Nahum 2.13 these dreadful words behold I am against you declares the Lord of hosts behold I am against you. Should you ever hear these words proclaimed to you, you should be utterly terrified. This is the God who makes mountains shake and dries up the rivers. And he says to Nineveh, behold, I am against you. The Lord of hosts, this is the, the, the sense of the God of armies of great, mighty power. 
and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messages shall be heard no longer. And again in Nahum 3, 5, we read, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make the nations look at your nakedness and the kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. The Lord is personally, personally concerned with the defense of his people and the punishment of his enemies. The Lord himself will see to it. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So we do not need to take matters into our own hands about the destruction of our enemies. Our job is to be faithful, to preach to love, to live out the truths we are given, not to take into our own hands the tearing down of our enemies. That we do what God has called us to, which is to preach the truth, to fight for good, but God is the one who raises up and tears down nations. And God will personally tear down those who are opposed to him. So let's think about now what is being done as Nahum gets into the specifics of the destruction that will be levied against Nineveh and Assyria. And we'll see through these a idea that every strength or pride of Nineveh and all of the things they had wrought by their power against others will now be turned against them. The things they trusted in, their great prides, will be the very things that God targets in this proclamation of destruction. So we read starting in, in verse 2, the scatterer, that's, that's the Lord, has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect your strength, pull pull everything you have together and see if you can withstand the Lord. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and have ruined their branches. Now speaking to Nineveh. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. Um, the chair this is a, a sense of like the bloodiness that will fall upon the soldiers the chariots race madly through the streets they rush to and fro through the squares they gleam like torches he remembers his officers they stumble as they go they hasten to the wall the siege tower is set up this is the, the armies of Nineveh, which had conquered so many lands, their chariots, their officers, 
Or we're all falling apart against the destruction of the Lord, unable to stand in the day of their destruction. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. That's the, the fortress or the fortification <coughs> defense. This, this was so cool. This is exactly how Nineveh falls. The river that feeds their moat floods. This is the, the archaeologists have seen that this is the way that Nineveh fell. The river that feeds the moat floods, weakening the bases of the walls until they collapse, providing a way for Nineveh to become sacked. The river gates are opened and the palace melts away. Who's that? I'm not sure. Uh, sure. Babylon, probably. Yeah. Which is, you know, yes. as we think about this, you know, clearly man is saying the Lord is going to do this, and clearly the Lord did. Mm-hmm. Okay, but now I'm curious as to who, how did he do that? Yeah. Because he normally does that through us. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and it may even be, you know, Babylon was also, I mean, you know, he used the new nation to do it. But I'm just curious who it was that actually ended up doing it. It is fun to hear that the, that the, the moon was flooded to the point where the foundations yeah, were. Uh, yeah. And those things are really wonderful. Yeah, like, this is great. And that God fulfills exactly oh, yeah, what he prophesied. Yeah. Yeah. We read later on in verse 8, Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Like, halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. That all of its its water is is so important to to lands, especially Mesopotamia, was so prosperous for its water, and the idea of them like drying away from them, mm-hmm. <laughs> like as, as the river stops flowing and you run up to it, stop, stop, please flow again. Mm-hmm. It just shows the vanity of all your efforts. Mm-hmm. This nation that was said earlier to have plundered Israel in all of its majesty. God now says, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or the wealth of all precious things. Such that everything that Assyria in its greatness took from everyone else will now become treasures for another nation to eat out of their corpse. Another interesting point of fulfillment. When it, when they excavated the city of Nineveh in the night, in the 20th century, they were expecting to find great treasures of wealth and gold and were very surprised to find none. Desolation, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all the loins. All the faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions. Where the lion and the lioness went. Where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. This is a picture of the strength, the, the, the army of the Assyrians that crushed and conquered and roared about everywhere, devouring every enemy. They're pictured like lions. 
And now, these lions who once sat in prosperity are melting hearts and trembling knees. Those who once roared now melt away in terror. And we get to the the passage we read earlier. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. Where once the, the lion tore enough for his cubs, there was abundance. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no longer. We see over and over that the greatness of the Assyrians is turned on its head. That that God is so powerful, so mighty, that every, not, not their weaknesses, God isn't attacking them at their weakest points and overthrowing them that way. He's attacking them at their strength, coming up against their greatest prides, and yet is able to still overturn it. You know, it's interesting that in the Lion King, the lionesses do all the hunting. Yeah. But if you want to take over the, what do they call the, the pack of lions, you have to defeat the, the pride. alpha male. Yeah. you got to go against the male. So it's interesting that verse 12, it says that the lion tore enough for his cubs, and he killed enough for his lionesses to eat, and all that kind of thing, When it's, which means that the king of that, that great power, that one lion that represents all that great power and everything, look what he does. Mm-hmm. Kind of neat. Right? Yeah. God uses nature like that. And so we, we see that God is bringing an utter destruction to this nation that would have been thought unconquerable. Mm-hmm. That, that what seemed to have no equal is like a house of cards to the God of the people of Judah and to our God. <coughs> Nahum also takes great pains to emphasize the powerlessness of Assyria against the destruction of the Lord. And we, we find that this is, is so true that even when all of the, the nations array themselves against God, they plot in vain. Even, and we, we see this fulfilled in Christ. You know, that the the nations rage, they plot in vain, this is Psalm 2, and they set themselves up against the Lord and against his anointed, believing that they had destroyed the anointed of God, and that's the very means by which he brings salvation to his people. We find that the, the nations are powerless. It, Nahum can even encourage and warn the nation, look, I'm coming for you. He's coming for you. Build up all your might. Uh, two verses one. Verse one, the scatterer has come up against you. Okay, the end. God is coming. So, so get all your soldiers ready. Watch the roads. Put men on the wall. Dress yourself for battle. Collect every last bit of your strength. Because it will not be enough. Mm-hmm. And I'm a, I want my God to be able to show just how much greater. Lest any say he was only able to, to overturn Assyria because it was weak. 
No, but that in all of the strength of men, it is still weakness before God. Again, we we see this theme worked out in 3.14 and following. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. Build even higher walls if you want to. Build them deeper and further. Add layer upon layer. There fire will devour you and the sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Make your armies as abundant as possible. You increased your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust spread it, spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes, your, your vaunted figures are like grasshoppers. When the sun rises, they fly away and no one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O kings, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. You are powerless against the Lord. How important it is for us to remember that God will have his way. Sometimes even as Christians, we need this reminder in our own lives when we, when we think to, to persist in sin, especially secret sin. Well, you know, I, I believe the gospel and I go to church and, you know, it's, I'm good enough. I can get by without, you know, I can hide the sin, whether it's frustrations in my heart, impatience or, or sexual sins, or I'm withholding money, or I like to lie at work for my own advantage a lot. You know, these different things that we might might hide from God, thinking that we could successfully keep things. But God will have his way. No sin will go unaccounted for. No thing will be hidden from him. No power is able to undo the purposes of God. And so either submit yourself to God and be sanctified by him as is his will for you. Or mark yourself down as a rebel against his causes dedicated for destruction. And we've seen this with with people, you know, Ravi Zacharias, who would have seemed so good on the outside. And then God eventually shows just how decrepit he was. He thought to escape judgment, and now he is facing it because the Lord will not be mocked. His purposes will be accomplished. Their devastation is utterly hopeless. Chapter 3, verse 7. All who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for you? And where shall I seek comforters for you? Or 319, where we read... There is no easing your hurt, 
your wound is grievous. Or all the way back in chapter 1 we read, The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. The God, our God sees every last bit of vileness and disgustingness of all of the filth of the sin of mankind. And he will make an utter end to it one day. When Christ comes to judge the living and the dead, God will make a final end to every vile deed in every evil behavior. Back again in in chapter 3, verse 19. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? We know that God is a just and avenging God. And he is doing this to Nineveh because of their great evils. He is bringing punishment for all of their evil deeds. And he all does this for the defense of the people of God. Chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. One twelve. thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, that's Judah or, or us as the people of God, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you, and I will burst your bonds apart. Verse 15, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. For he is utterly cut off. What does that verse remind us of? Which verse in Isaiah? Well, I can cheat here and look. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 52.7. Beautiful are the feet who bring good news. I thought the the good news was Jesus dying for our sins. Is this not? Is this a different good news? Is this the same good news? Did we have it wrong when we thought? The same looking forward to Jesus. Yeah, there's there's a tie-in between the defeat of our enemies that God does and the deliverance and salvation that he gives to us. Uh, Zacharias uh, spoke of this in Luke 2. And his father, Zacharias, who filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. 
and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, including Mayhem and Micah and all the rest, right? Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy towards our fathers yeah. and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we be delivered from the hand of our enemies and might serve him without fear. Think of that. Yeah. Now, all these battles and deliveries from the Lord are all a type of God's uh, ultimate rescue and salvation from yeah. the evil of the world and personal salvation yeah. to his son. Yeah. I like that that verse brings out that idea of, of serving the Lord in peace because that's the same thing that's captured here. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. That there's a, a way in which the peace that God secures for us frees us to even more fully worship and praise him. And so the gospel starts with the cross where the power of sin and death is overturned, where our great enemy, our great accuser, stands with nothing left to say because our Savior has said it is finished, where we can look at the cross and say, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? That's good news. That is the gospel. And it comes to its fullness like the bud who, who bursts forth and then one day opens up into its completeness. On the day of the second coming of Christ, when death and Hades will be cast into the grave, when Satan will be defeated, that great Revelations 20, where, where God will once and for all make a end to our enemy of sin so that he might never again Oppose us or trouble us. And no evil enters That's into the exactly. new Jerusalem. That's the verse I was going to bring up. Now, yeah. This makes me think of, for never again shall the worthless pass through you, I thought. Yeah. Go, bring it right to the, yeah. no evil thing shall ever enter. Yeah. It's the eternal state. That's right. You know. Psalm 1 says, you know, sinners will not stand in the assembly of the righteous. You know, that, that there will one day be the, the holy convocate, convocation where we can all gather together from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people and praise God without any sin left in our midst to trouble us. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, the Prince of Peace. Let us, let us obey our Lord, living in the already, the already shackles broken off of us, that, that, that sin no more rules in us. We may still sin, but we are not under the dominion of sin. We are well and truly already free. And yet, there is the not yet that we look forward to. The not yet that the people of Israel were looking forward to in this passage of when Assyria would be destroyed and our not yet 
of when Satan will be destroyed and we will be forever free from every last bit of sin of its corruption. Brother Todd? Yeah, Paul says, you know, this is an amazing thing to be already not yet. First Corinthians 3, 21. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Amen. I mean, that's, that's just... How do you even enter into that that present reality spiritually? Yeah. yeah. The great thing. I mean, there's so many great things, but all of this jealousy, this vengeance, this great and terrifying power that shakes the foundations of the world that was captured in that first section. All of that should have been levied against us. We should be should have been ones of which the Lord said, Behold, I am against you. That should have been our end. But it pleased the Father to send the Son to take every last bit of that on our behalf. So that instead of the destruction, instead of every ounce of God's great power being levied against us, it was levied against his son. That instead every ounce of God's great power would be for our defense and for our vindication. That God would see us as so united with him that defending himself is defending us and that defending us is defending himself. So just as jealous as God is for his own glory, for his own holiness, his own righteousness, just as jealous as he is to defend all of those things, his own rights, so too. He is jealous to defend us who do not deserve a bit of it. Let's close in prayer. Lord, what great truths are captured in your scripture. We have not plumbed the greatness of your power, nor the greatness of your love, nor the greatness of your wrath. And so let this just be the first inkling inkling that could grow even more and more into deeper and deeper understandings of who you are so that we might weep for joy at the publishing of peace and the bringing of good news, not just in this moment, but in every moment that we would take away this thing, Lord, that our God is for us, And then nothing can stand against us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.